Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So hi, Jeremy Thompson, uh, formerly of Sky News. Uh, thanks very much for coming on the uh, Press Gazette Journalism Matters podcast. Delighted that we can reach a few more journalists and maybe uh, inspire a few more people to become journalists. Uh, I think we're badly in need of torch carriers for the, for the industry and the, and the whole game of journalism at the moment. I think I sort of ended my career thinking, oh, you know, us mainstream journalists are a bit under threat in this day and age, aren't we? Uh, the, the advent of fake news, which I don't think is anything particularly new, but a reincarnation or the latest version of misinformation and propaganda is in danger of swamping traditional news and maybe confusing people to the extent that they're going to find it hard to tell what's right and what's wrong and who to trust. Yeah. And what, what I love about the book is that you, you are a broadcaster who's got lots of scoops and found lots of stories. So a bit of a cheesy question really, but what, what's the, what do you think was the biggest story you got or, or, or a couple of the ones that stand out? The, I mean, the biggest body of work, if you like, that I'm proud of is the is the the first half of the 90s in South Africa, watching the end of something I thought I'd never see end in my life, which was apartheid. So to cover pretty much from the moment that Mandela came out of jail, which I covered from Lusaka with the ANC in exile, watching him come out and being so out of the loop that they almost didn't know how to celebrate him coming out of jail right the way through to that election in 94 and the Rugby World Cup with those iconic images of him and Francois Pinar and the World Cup trophy in 95 was an incredible period to be in a story that you covered day in, day out. And although I may not have had that many scoops as such out of it, I felt that it's quite something to be on the front line of a story that you can see almost from the beginning stage right the way through to the end with all its ups and downs with the massacres and the violence and the negotiations so I mean it was a very exciting time to be there and he was you know he was a hugely charismatic man and yet still had time to remember the names of people like me and all the other foreign correspondents from the day I first met he never forgot he would always say, good morning, Jeremy, how are you? How's your family? I mean, in the midst of everything else he had on his shoulders. I think, I think quite early on, when you were in South Africa, you were, you were there at a, um, was it a massacre or a shooting. Mm. And uh, like, I think a journalist got killed just yards away from where, where you were standing. Isn't that right? I mean, amazing. There were a couple of massacres we got caught in. I probably came nearer to, to being killed in South Africa than almost anywhere else. and There were a few other instances, but I got caught up in the Siskai massacre in 1992 when there was a huge ANC march on one of the uh, black homelands but uh, with a, a homeland leader who was sympathetic to the white government, and he ordered his troops to open fire on the ANC march, and over 200 were injured, 28 were killed, and we were literally in the middle of it, rolling down the hill with bodies dead and alive around us. And... It's a tribute to my 
crew that they were still able to record all this and we were able to get this on air and I mean that was pretty staggering then a couple of years later the very first day I went out to work for Sky News we went out to check what the ANC had described as a peace breaking out in a local township when we got there we got caught in crossfire clearly peace hadn't broken out and yeah an AFP photographer got shot through the back and through the heart right in front of me another journalist got uh, wounded beside me and we ended up scrambling for safety and and as I remember recording at the time you know doing the piece of the camera a few minutes later you know for us it was a one-off for one you know once in your life you were really in danger and yet for the people who lived there in, in these difficult turbulent times in South Africa it was an almost everyday occurrence and I mean I think that's what you can do as a journalist you can remind people what happens in other people's lives, you know, who have more problems than them, probably, and have a tougher time, and they're living through the turbulent, the turmoil of history. I mean, the uh, just on those sort of dangerous scrapes and, and so on, the, um, the thing that really, the chapter that really stuck out for me was the, uh, when you covered the invasion of Iraq, mm. and uh, went in as a sort of, you know, roving, unembedded... Uh, reporting team who um, you kind of, I think you went into Iraq ahead of the invasion, didn't you, or almost at the same time, is it? I mean, the 2003 one, yeah, we, we went through as, we went through a hole in the fence literally, with uh, quite illegally with our small satellite truck and a small team and were on the roadside in the first town when British troops started rolling by us, yes, yeah, so we were ahead of them. I mean, and again, sort of you know, the uh, you know Terry Lloyd mm. from ITN did the same thing, didn't he? And uh, got caught in the crossfire. And just shows you really the sort of the strange nature of journalism and the the luck and the bad luck. I mean, literally, Terry, who I'd known very well, was an old mate from ITN for many years. We'd flown in on the same flight into Kuwait, had a beer together, and uh, and we both, you know, we both jokingly said, "Come." We're getting a bit old for this, mate, aren't we? You know, we're, <laughs> let's have a beer and compare notes at the end of it. And we literally went over the border on the same day, a few miles apart, into southern Iraq near Basra. I turned left with my team. He turned right with his. He walked into. He drove into crossfire between local. Um, the the local militias and the American army and just got caught in the middle and got killed and we found out that night I remember it vividly because it was the Saturday the 22nd of March it was also my youngest son's wedding day back in Surrey which I had missed apart from sending a note which also reminds you some of the things you end up giving up as a as a journalist but no we sat and cried some that night and thought about what we should do and we agreed together that for the sake of the story and for the sake of Terry and all the others he would have wanted us to go on so we carried on reporting and in fact we spent a month inside Iraq ending up in Baghdad as the day the statue of Saddam came down and I presented my program every day for a month from inside Iraq in fairly difficult circumstances but it was a hell of a story. I mean uh... It just, with hindsight, it, it just seems like an incredibly dangerous thing to do. I mean, mm. do, do you think? Um, I mean, do you think that that sort of thing could happen now, or, or do you think, uh, you know, or do you think we're slightly more um, 
cautious now in, in the way you... We might be more cautious. I don't... I mean... I'm not sure we were being utterly cavalier. I mean, I had been into those sort of situations before. You tend to be surrounded by a fairly experienced team, or the experienced ones in your team, camera crew, an engineer, whoever it might be. You do tend to talk amongst yourselves and go, you know, we're doing the right thing here. Should we take the left turn, the right turn? Should we turn back? You know, you do try and weigh up these things. We didn't have any sort of military escort at the time or any security. We just played it by ear and sort of felt our way cautiously up there. But, you know, in the end, in the front line of news, there are times when you have to calculate your risks and probably take some because there's a lot of viewers and a lot of readers and a lot of listeners to news who are only going to get it if you're there to tell it to them. So it is part of the role that you take on as a journalist. And you, said, you mentioned that yeah, you missed your son's wedding. I mean, goodness, that, that, is, that is devotion there. I mean, did you, looking back on it, you know, has it been hard that, you know, balance? You've got a big family, haven't you? You talk about the family, your family a lot in the, the book and your, and your wife, Lynn, who seems like a saintly, uh, saintly, saintly person. <laughs> well, long-suffering, <laughs> long-suffering, that's for sure. Um, well, I think for a long time, before I was on Rolling News, um, sort of out of sight, out of mind. I think when you only appear on, you know, as I would have done, 9 o'clock news on BBC or News at 10 on ITN back in the old days, um, that, you know, family didn't really know what you were up to half the time. But suddenly when I joined Sky and you're in an age of Rolling News and you're standing there doing it live all day, I think <laughs> it was more terrifying for my wife than it had been before. And I think, you know, she felt it at times pretty strongly. But there are two or three occasions like those massacres in South Africa when the first thing you do is actually ring into your desk to tell you what's happened. And the desk quite often would helpfully ring your wife and say, they're all right, you know, dear. And, and she'd say, well, why wouldn't they? Oh, well, you know, the massacre they were caught up in. And clearly she hadn't actually known, like a lot of you know, families don't actually know you're caught up in those things. So the helpfulness of the news desks can sometimes be a bit of a setback in uh, marital relations. But, I mean, uh, as far as you're concerned, the kind of... This, often the story uh, outweighed that. I mean, you, you, I think in Tiananmen Square, you were there for six weeks, weren't you? Not yeah. About, you know, yeah. Yes, I mean, uh, we were, and it was, uh, it was an incredible story. And, and after a while, the, the students began to know who we were, and we became sort of part of the fabric of their struggle, if you like. We were their mouthpiece that was getting this story out. I thought it was one of the, the stories that was... Um, most extraordinary to tell, you know, the, the arrival of the tanks on the outskirts of town, having to smuggle tapes out to avoid being arrested, um, and then the final crushing of the uprising of the peaceful rebellion by students was a hell of a wake-up call to us journalists because I think we tend to sort of go into these things thinking, well, as long as we're there... Nothing bad can happen. We're carrying these people's message to the world, and it was a it was a salutary lesson and a and a and a very sobering lesson to all of us journalists who were in Tiananmen during those um, months with the students. At the end, the Chinese authority could roll the troops in, crush the rebellion, and take no, not a blind bit of notice of us. 
And in the end, we hadn't been able to shape history. We hadn't been able to help the students necessarily. In the long term, it probably did change China. But at the time, we went away, I think, slightly with our tails between our legs. Um, at one point in the book, you talk about um, the problem with news desks phoning up to follow up things that your rivals have done. And you say, well, yeah, it's, it's complete nonsense. It's rubbish. They made, they made it up. And I was sort of quite intrigued by that. You don't really hear much about that sort of side of life and broadcasting. I mean, can you elaborate any further or you do, do you have to be fairly discreet? You know, you're talking about... No, I mean, uh, back in the early days when there were really only two broadcasters, really only ITN and BBC. So it was quite a small number. It was incredibly competitive. I mean, that competitive edge has been slightly dissipated by the huge number of channels that are around these days. But in those days, it was head-to-head against your rival. And um, all sorts of tricks were played. Uh, You know, you'd try and outfox them, outrun your rivals. I can remember times when the early days of... A videotaping came in in the in the 80s and, and uh, sound recorders taking a magnet out surreptitiously out their pocket and wiping the tapes of their rivals, letting down people's tyres and so on. But also, it was the day when I, I found as a young reporter that not everybody you were up against necessarily told, told God's honest truth. And some people did have agendas um, that I was, I guess, slightly naively shocked by. Um, and others that just it's just the way news works you get out somewhere and I found as a television journalist you'd ring into the desk and they'd say oh well um, I know you're at that demo but you know press association is reporting that there was a there were they were clubbing each other with sticks and you'd say well no I've been here filming all day and that simply didn't happen Ah, but PA, couldn't you get it in somewhere because PA, you know, that sort of thing. And you go, well, no, it's, it just didn't happen. So, and I found that sort of thing quite up. What I discovered as a foreign correspondent is from some of the older hands that if you went in somewhere where there really weren't many of you uh, and therefore information was at a premium, quite often you'd pick up a bit of a scoop, you'd ring in your desk in London and they go, well, I'm not seeing it for anybody else. And you go, yeah, yeah, but I've got it myself. I've got this scoop myself. Yeah, but nobody else is reporting it. So the old thing about you've got to have three sources before you can go with it. So what happened, I picked up the tips as other journalists did. What you do is you go and find the news agencies, Reuters, AP, UPI, whoever it was at the time, and you'd go and drop them the story that you'd seen They'd put it on wires, then you'd ring your desk, and they'd say, yeah, yeah, just see it on Reuters, brilliant, send us a piece. Um, you know, you sometimes do what you have to do. <laughs> so the, uh... Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Uh, you t- talk obviously a lot, a lot about Sky in the book and also about your earlier career as well. And uh, it's sort of amazing, those early years of Sky, very buccaneering, as you say, you know, deals done in the pub, right, off we mm. go, set up a bureau, you know, <laughs> go for it. And... Um, you sort of say how 
changed a lot, you know, the, to, to, be, to being quite sort of cautious, corporate, politically correct, I think you say in the book now, yeah. Sky compared to what it was in the early days. I mean, how, 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 has it, how did it change from the, from the start to, towards the end? I think, I mean, the days when the marsupials ran it, as we used to call them, the good old Aussie gang that Murdoch had put in there in the sort of late 80s and through the 90s, yeah, they did have a fairly buccaneering and cavalier view of it and I think they thought well Rupert likes Sky News you know let them get on with it you boys and we had we were very management light the exec producers of each program that we worked on had uh, great autonomy and people were given their head to make decisions and you know put programs together as they saw fit and I think it's just the natural evolution of a large company that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The the sort of the corporate spread becomes bigger. And I think also, you know, in in recent years, the thing that has made the big difference was the phone hacking scandal, not that it was just confined to Murdoch's newspaper empire, but other papers got caught up in it as well. But it spread, along with Leveson, a big wet blanket across newsrooms throughout the country I felt and it made uh, there was a lot more sort of corporate uh, oversight and corporate governments and compliance became heavier also I, I do think that the regulatory bodies have become more watchful and tighter on what they allow and you know I talk in the book about what went on in Asia and Africa in wars there and you know the genocide in Rwanda, you know, civil war in Somalia and Angola and Mozambique and going to southern Sudan. We saw extraordinary things and we put a lot of that on air, you know, to go to war, you know, in the first Gulf War, the Iraq War, Yugoslav War, people got killed. It's a fact of life. My belief is that, you know, you shouldn't dress it up too much. You shouldn't keep too much from the public. It's a, it, it becomes a deceit in a way if you're not careful. And I felt that if you're somewhere, you're not going to show them the, the worst of everything. But, you know, for people to sit at home and watch a war going on and to not really think people die in it is fool, foolish. And it's not us doing our job. But there's no doubt that broadcasters in Britain and probably around the world have become far more regulated and far more squeamish and cautious about the, what they put on air. And stuff I would have got on 20 years ago wouldn't, would hit the cutting room floor now. It wouldn't get on air, quite as simple as that. And I think that's a sadness because I, I don't think that's treating the viewers as grown-ups as they should be. And I think in the end, you know... Viewers have got the right to know, and they've also got the right to decide whether they watch or not. And there's an off button on television sets, and if they don't like what they see, they can turn it off. But don't come screaming at me that I'm not telling you the truth. Don't tell, don't come calling me fake news or whatever when I'm trying to show you what's happening out in the big wide world. Not all of it's very pleasant. You know, I've I spent 50 years trying to be fair with viewers and honest with viewers and to be as impartial as I possibly could and give them the raw material to make their decisions about what was going on in the world and how they wanted to see it and how they wanted to deal with it. So I 
worry about what's going on these days. I worry about the timidity and the caution of broadcasters. And, you know, I worry also about the whole genre of fake news, the new form of propaganda and misinformation. All of those, I think, are putting enormous pressure on, on us hopefully credible journalists from traditional media who are trying to do their best to get the story out there. So I think they're tough times. I think there's some big questions, some big battles for journalists coming up. Yeah, and given all that, I mean, would, you, um, uh, would you encourage a sort of you know, young person, a grandchild or whatever, to, uh, to, to, to go into journalism, given all the uh, you know, challenges that it, that it faces? Well, I still think it's a fantastic career. I mean, if... if I, I was very lucky. I started as a kid in my teens on a local paper, never thinking I'd get to grown-up telly and so on. I thought if I was really lucky and half good, I might get to Fleet Street. And then local radio and regional telly started up in the late, seven, uh, late 60s, early 70s, and it gave a lot of us a chance from the sticks to come in and have a go at grown-up telly. And as a result, I had a bit of everything newspapers, radio, telly, three different networks, and saw the world. So as far as I'm concerned, I, I had 50 years of the most extraordinary career, saw things I never dreamt I'd see, had an incredibly fulfilling career, had lots of fun along the way and lots of scares as well. And if youngsters coming into it these days have half as much fun and are half as fulfilled as I am, I would say give it a go because it can be a great career and good luck. So the um, uh, Sky, obviously, going in the news, Sky News in the news at the moment with the uh, takeover, <laughs> the endless takeovers going on. Mm. Uh, so were, you were there from the beginning. Did, uh, did Murdoch ever, you know, did, did you ever see any evidence of Murdoch or his acolytes kind of influencing editorial? No, no, no. Um, when I, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't there quite at the start, but I was there about four years in and I jumped ship from ITN and most of my colleagues thought I was nuts and said, you've got to be crazy going over there. And I knew a lot of people had been in newspapers who really load the whole Murdoch empire and really would never work for it and were a bit shocked that I'd gone. And I said, look, you know, I'm going to take a side find. If I find that I don't like the environment and I interfere with people try and tell me how to do my journalism and try and drag me off the impartial route that I've tried to take, I will be out of there as quick as a flash. And I have to say, at the end of it all, I met Murdoch a few times and I certainly can't ever say that he tried to interfere in anything that I did or anybody around me did, ever. And I would say there was probably less tinkering and less interference than in some other networks of a more traditional nature that I worked for. So, takes you fine. I thought he was fine. Thought he, I thought Rupert Murdoch loved news. He was very proud of Sky News. It was pretty key that he was, and he probably allowed it to go on even when it wasn't making money because he liked what it did and he liked the reaction to it and he liked what it had achieved. And I think it was, if you ask him in the news business, I think he'd say it's one of his proudest achievements and I still think he's proud of it and he knew not to tinker with it. What about this idea that um, Sky has said that they might, they would consider um, closing the news channel if, um, if that was what it took to convince the regulators that, you know, that that... that 
to uh, allow the kind of the takeover? I think it's a very bold negotiating tactic and not much more at the moment, but I wouldn't rule it out that if they came to it, if they were to save the rest of the empire, the Sky Empire, and they had to sacrifice Sky News, they would because they take bold decisions and there are big monies involved in Sky News, but I... I believe because Sky News has, I hope, sort of won a place in the hearts of a percentage of Brits who like what it does and like how it does it, that they they would be very loath to get rid of it. They still believe in it as part of the the portfolio of offerings on Sky. But I, I just think they're getting a bit fed up with the, you know, the political shilly-shallying and the interference and the, you know... When it appears that there's not particularly there's not a particularly good reason why the Murdoch Empire shouldn't take back the majority share of it, and I don't think the issue of plurality really bears a lot of scrutiny at the moment. But politicians seem a bit frightened to make decisions about it. What do you think we'd lose if, it, if you know, heaven forbid, it, you know, it did go in terms of the well, I always believe, as, as journalists, like any other business, you need that good competition is healthy. Um, we've, you know, at least the BBC is still in the game. Bear in mind, when Sky first started out, it's quite a long time before any other competitor came along. So we had the, you know, the field to ourselves. Then Sky, then BBC came along. ITV gave it a go for a while, and then, you know, obviously it didn't pay, and they thought it was too big a. Uh, cash burden on them, but the Beeb's still in the game. It would be a shame for the not to be healthy competition, which always drives both channels on. So I think it's a shame, and I think they're two um, contrasting options for people to watch. You may like one, you may not like the other, but at least you've got a choice. And I just think in journalism and in news and in broadcasting, it's a good idea and it's healthy to have a choice. So I'd be very sad if Sky News fell by the wayside. One of the things I like about the book is it's got some good um, practical stuff in there about, about journalism that journalists will, will find interesting. Um, and I like the tips. You throw through t- a few tips in there. So <laughs> just, uh, if you wouldn't mind, just share a few, a few of your advice, if you like, that you would give to a, 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 a young journalist who wants to, wants to be successful. What, what, what do you think works well as a, as a broadcaster, as a news broadcaster? Um, well, I think the simplest thing is to level with your viewer. I think to be... Um, I mean, I've, you know, I grew up in an era where people almost wore dinner jackets on the BBC to present the news, and it was a bit stiff and formal and a bit remote. And the one good thing I think Sky News did is bring it to people, make it very accessible and make it friend, user-friendly, if you like. So one of the things I found was that you know I'd talk to viewers like equals not patronizing not talk down to them but tell it to them straight and if something goes wrong say it. don't feel embarrassed about it don't embarrass them tell it to them straight you know hey there's something you know the wheels are coming off here but I'll try and keep it together for you um and you know don't overdo stuff and there's a you know there's that danger that 
people go, oh, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's been a real pleasure having you on. No, just please, thanks. You know, don't, don't overdo it with your fellow broadcasts. You've got to correspond on. Don't thank them. It's like, the, you've, you know, the Queen making a rare appearance on television. It's a colleague. They've come to tell you a story. You make it accessible for the public. As far as I'm concerned, that's the key thing. Take the public, you've got to take the public into your trust, they've got to take you into their trust. So don't speak down to them, speak straight to them. And as some, somebody told me when I very first started out, picture where the camera is, picture your granny sitting about the same distance the other side of the camera and put the notes down, just chat to her, tell her the story. And you, and you have this voice as, as well, which is obviously great for a broadcaster. I mean, I turned, the, I turned my microphone down a bit because I'm, 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 I'm glad I did because you've got this great... Great, you know, great delivery. I mean, is that that's something you you were born with, or did you? Is that something you've developed as you've gone as you've gone through? No, I always had a bit of a loud voice. You know, I was the bloke that they'd get up at you know, the carol service to to read the, you know, read a few lessons in uh, in church or in front of the school, just because I seemed to be the loudest little sod in the school, and I carried on that way. And then, you know, sort of a few decent bottles of wine and a few glasses of whiskey and it's got a bit deeper and a bit louder but I was never known for being shy and retiring or having a quiet voice but so it has helped. Who are the, um, uh, the journalists you rate and uh, other, other broadcasters out there? Who, who, who are the ones you, that, you, that you think are, are really good? It's, it's a funny thing growing up in the in the news business I started out in newspapers and and all the sort of heroes were James Camerons and people writing in newspapers. So it was later on I turned my attention to um, to the broadcast news. And there have been some good ones over the years, you know. And, uh, and then people who became colleagues like you know, Keith Graves and other sort of terrific reporters who were out there on television news in the early days, who I think blazed a trail for the rest of us. Um, I don't know. I don't think I've sort of got heroes in this day and age. There's plenty of people I read, plenty of people I admire, and I know, you know, I know from my own experiences out in the field and watching people who are, you know, who are the good ones and you know who are the less good ones. It's a, like every other walk of life. There's a, there's a, you know, a gradation of uh, good to fairly ordinary out there, and there's a lot more broadcasting around. But um, yeah, there are there are people who still come up with cracking good stories. For me, you know, as a television journalist, it's not the person who sits in the studio, really. It's still the correspondent out there, you know, in a difficult spot, turning out the best stories they possibly can. So foreign correspondents across, you know, all walks of life, I think, all, all channels in this country, US channels, other English-speaking channels we listen to, I'm always impressed by you know the ones who get there, get the story, and tell it well. And in the end, it's telling it well so people are absorbed. So I've got a couple more quick questions. The um, one of the big things we wrote about oh, a few months ago is BBC Pay, and I, I wouldn't be so bold as to ask you what you were paid at Sky, but the uh, the we t- we tied up the number of BBC journalists who were paid more than Theresa May, you know, more than 150 grand, which was 42 of them. <laughs> You know, from Hugh Edwards up, mm. somewhere about five hundred grand a year below. I mean, you, you would have a fair idea about 
the, the market. Do you, do you think that? Do you think that they're worth it, those guys, or do you think, do you think it's uh, you know? Uh, it's, I mean, it is the old marketplace. Yeah. I was surprised what I ended up getting paid, yeah. but then I'd started on four guineas a week yeah. on the Cambridge News. So um, it was a long journey, but that was 50 years later. So, yeah, I was surprised what they were willing to pay. Um, and I'm not sure that money will be there in future. I think it'll be a diminished market. I'm not sure that, uh, you know, I think there was a golden period where the few figureheads probably were able to, um, you know, turn a few extra bob out. But I mean, compared with the American market, which is staggering, you know, I mean, I, I could stand alongside an American anchor and know that they were probably earning 50 times what I was, doing exactly the same job and probably for shorter than I was. So it's what the market will hold. I mean, I, yeah, I was surprised to end up earning what I did. Um, and I'm grateful but it was what I was offered and what the market was uh, I, you know I don't know it, I think the market will change um, again so what, what, are you, what are you up to now I mean uh, I, I think it must be a bit like um, when, when, the, when a sort of thoroughbred race course goes, goes, <laughs> goes out to pasture and, you, and they, they have to sort of like wind them down a bit I mean, yeah no my, my wife puts a nose bag on every day it's lovely and I just go out and chew it and it's fine um well, busy at the moment. It's it's quite intriguing. The whole world of books and trying to get your book talked about, promote it, and hope that people enjoy it, hope they like it, and so on. Uh, in between, I've done a you know a few documentaries, a bit of work here and there. I'm not itching to. I mean, I'm seventy. I worked fifty years. I don't feel I owe anybody anything, and I don't have to do anything. I don't want to. So I'm enjoying trying to get my golf handicap down. I'm travelling plenty, uh, seeing my family a bit more than usual. Uh, I'm actually able to take my wife out for lunch for the first time in about 34, 40 years. So that's uh, that's been quite welcome. But um, of course, seventy is no no age now when it comes to broadcasting. I mean, lots of uh, lots of broadcast journalists go on a long time after that. But you you went you went you you, you weren't tempted uh, you weren't tempted to do so. You, got, you felt it was the right time to. No, well, it, yeah, it did feel the right time actually. And I've looked back this year, and, and do you know this. The, the Zimbabwe story now with Mugabe is the first one that's actually got me salivating this year. I mean, the election, Brexit, oh, not my sort of stories. I mean, I was a out on the range sort of guy, you know, give me, give me a foreign story a, or a war or, you know, conflict somewhere or some intriguing stories. I'm not not a great one for sitting in studios and talking too much politics. So uh, Zimbabwe, the end of Mugabe, who I met many years ago and interviewed a few times, is an intriguing yarn. And it's the first one I thought, well, yeah, I wish I was there. Otherwise, I thought, I've done my bit. Let somebody else have a go. Well, look, brilliant. Great to meet you, Jeremy. And uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed the book. I'd, I'd recommend it. And, uh, you know, thanks for, thanks for coming on our podcast. My pleasure. Sometimes I feel my journey's halfway through. away to go. And if I should lose my way, then just with the flow. But if I get stuck in a rut, then smash the state of war. I've got a few little things along the way. Then 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.